Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Shaughnessy, nothing personal word of the day. It is a Samson sit down and we've got him. Known as to me, the greatest writer of sports books of all time. And I don't say that lightly. His background is not just baseball, basketball, but it is in putting words in a very articulate way to tell a story that is so impactful that you will not be able to put the book down. His newest book is called Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. Dan, welcome to Nothing Personal. Well, thank you, David. It's impossible to live up to that introduction, but we'll, we'll have as much fun as we can here. I appreciate that. Well, the fact of the matter is if, if people Google you, which they will when listening to this, and they look at all the different ways they can buy all the different books, you write on a variety of subjects. I do want to start with your most recent book, not just because your publicist told me I have to, right. because, because it totally interests me. Writing a book about the Larry Bird Celtics, just to give the audience background, they've known my love of the New York Knicks. The New York Knicks were my life, my passion from 1974. Unfortunately, I started the year after they won their second title. Sure. Up until I joined, started in baseball in 1999, I lived and died with the NBA. I always wanted to be a point guard for the New York Knicks. And then at my bar mitzvah, I realized that it was going to be easier to own a team than to play on a team. And that was a terrible day. So I want to talk about this book. And now to give, please give people the your background of why you would write about the Celtics because they may not know. Thank you, Dave. So, I mean, you start off with the pandemic, right? Everything we talk about today starts with the friggin' pandemic. So roll back to, you know, March, April, May of 2020 when there were no sports, there were no games. And, you know, we were all home and um, I'd come back from spring training. I'd been in Fort Myers with the Red Sox and came home March 13th. I remember and had a bunch of people in my house, two of my daughters with their babies were transitioning here. So it was chaos here. And, you know, we were watching the last dance on, on Sunday nights. It was appointment TV. It was like something to see a little sports and seeing a lot of those eighties and nineties NBA games. So kind of touched me a little bit. And then, and then in Boston, they would show the Celtics classics of the eighties, the Larry Bird Celtics. And I had been the beat reporter for the Boston globe for that team for four seasons, 82 through 86. And, they were good years. Bird was MVP three times in that in that period. And it was it was total immersion. You know, you, you traveled, lived with the team in those days. So um, I kept seeing my 28 year old self sitting at the at the press table with, the you know, giant Michael Caine glasses and big hair, even bigger than now. And and, you know, remembering in those days, the lowly writers got to sit in those seats. The NBA finally figured out they can get several grand for those seats every night. So we got bounced upstairs. I understand that. But in those days, the league was much smaller. And I was part of that uh, fledgling NBA, which, of course, grew to be a, a global enterprise under David Stern, helped by Larry and Magic in the 
early 80s, and then Michael coming in in 84. So I lived that. And I remember when, when basketball resumed uh, at the COVID bubble in Orlando, there was, you had to, if, you, if a reporter went there, your, your outlet had to spend like $60,000 to get somebody to cover. And then you quarantined for a couple of weeks. And then you signed a waiver and you said, if, there's, if you ever encounter or see someone away from the facility, you, you, you will not approach them. Well, we did all of our work that way when I covered the team in the, in the 80s with the Larry Bird Celtics, because it was total immersion. We lived with them. We traveled with them. The buses, the hotels, the airports, the commercial travel. I mean, waiting for bags, being in the hotel bar at night. I mean, outside of the fame and the, and the wealth and the groupies, it was like being on the team. You know, we were kind of like players, but we didn't have any of those other perks. So uh, I knew that everybody knows who won the games and, you know, going ancient history. We can go as far back as you want or as recent as you want. But this book is about what they were like and, and the interactions between the then media and, and the great Celtics who were very confident, unusual group there. And it was a chance for me to, to all the stories I've been telling in bars for 30, 40 years to to bring those out and tell people what they were actually like. And, and this is sort of my great Gatsby where I'm Nick Carraway and the Celtics are Gatsby. And I'm just telling you as an observer what it's like. And it was, it was different then. It's nobody's fault that it's evolved to what it is now, the big moat we have now. Like here in Boston, nobody knows what Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum's like or Marcus Smart. If, if they don't like the new coach, we don't know those things. But I'll tell you, when, when we covered it back then, you know, the old Stone Age days, we did know. We knew if there was disgruntlement in the locker room because we were always in it. And I was not necessarily a, a partner of any of these players. They, they, I was suspicious. They called me Scoop. And uh, Bird, of course, is very suspicious around new people. And I'd walk into that locker room and he'd say, Scoop, do you ever notice how quiet it gets when you walk in here? And, uh, you know, that relationship got better. And, and, you know, I'm from a small town and, and I felt that through the years it got to be pretty good where there was a little bit of comfort and trust. And, and there's a lot of Larry Bird in this book where he's just talking just one-on-one -on -one and just stuff about growing up in rural Indiana. I grew up in a rural town in Massachusetts and the love of basketball, wearing Converse All-Stars and having older brothers who were really good players and just how you kind of get into it. And uh, so I, I felt a good stride with him and that the whole team, you know, the personalities were outsized, you know, Cedric Maxwell, ML Carr, Kevin McHale, Dennis Johnson, Danny Ainge. And of course, Bill Walton comes in at the end. The last team I covered, they went 50 and one at home. Well, no one's ever going to do that again. I believe that team translates to the greatest of all time. If they're playing today, they're big, they're seven foot, Six ten, seven foot, six nine. They're physical. They have outside shooters, Larry Bird, Scott Wedman. They could hit the threes, Jerry Seesting, Danny Ainge. Um, they could run. You know, when I asked Mikhail about that, he said, Well, if they let us play by our rules of the 80s, we'd still win, but we'd probably all foul out today in the first quarter because of the way they enforce the hand checking and the bumping in the game that they play versus the game now. And of course, they weren't jacking up, you know, a million three pointers every night, but I think Bird took two a game. But it would have been an interesting test to see him let it go from out there because we saw it in practice every day. And that was one of the things I noticed about that team, the, the level of comfort they had with their own greatness. And there was not a lot of pettiness. Who gets the most touches? Um, you know, who's sharing? Who's getting the ball? It, it, it was a very it was the greatest passing team of all time. Danny Ainge used to lobby to get into garbage time just so he could be on the floor. And Walton was feathering those passes late in the games. And, you know, Bill got one gift season at the end of his career playing 80 games for that last team. 
and it was just a great time. And the last thing I'll say, and I know it's a long windy answer before I get to your next question, but you know, it was the, the notion of, of, you know, LeBron started with the decision and coming down to your town and, 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 you know, team uh, players meeting with one another at the all-star game and agreeing who's going to play where next year and kind of getting together and shooting their way out of town and forming their own teams. That didn't go on back then. I'm not saying it was better or worse, but there was hatred for the other team. Uh, Larry Bird, he hated Bill Lambeer so much that his first question when he would, when Larry got named to the all-star team, he's a starter every year, he'd say, let me know when they announce the reserves because I want to know if Lambeer's going to be there because I hate him. I can't stand going to all-star weekend practice. Got to get on the bus the morning. He's sitting there saying, good morning, Larry. And I got to say, screw you, Bill. So it was, uh, there was not a lot of uh, love or embracing one another after the games when they were playing each other. They hated each other. So anyway, NBA then, NBA now, neither's right or wrong. It was different then. This is sort of a love letter to those times and what it was like. Well, that's, there's so much to unpack that I have three things we have to follow up on. Let's start with, you, you mentioned just casually a beat reporter from 1982 to 1986. And I think that fans of Nothing Personal and listeners, the concept of a beat reporter has changed so much. And one of the things that has changed is that players now have a way to express themselves without a conduit. They've got social media. They've got access to their fans in a way that when you were a beat reporter, you were the access. If they wanted something to be out or if a team wanted something to be out, the reason why beat reporters had so much access, without you, no one knew anything that was going on. But a tightrope that you had to walk as a beat reporter, and you glossed over it too quickly. You're on the team plane. We had with the Marlins and with the Expos, the writers and the broadcasters are on the team plane. But then the writers were off the team plane and it was just the broadcasters. Then we had rules that we put in place as to when beat reporters or anybody from the media could be in the clubhouse. We had rules about the hotel bar and that players couldn't be in the hotel bar. We made them go somewhere else because executives wanted to be at the hotel bar. Basically, we made it difficult for you to do your job. And that's why the job has changed so much. When you look back at those four years as beat reporter, how did you walk the line when on the record, off the record? Because assuming the 80s were like the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s, there's stuff going on on the road that really would not be great for both the team or the player to know about. So while you were called scoop and people know what a scoop is, now it's called first. It's no longer called scoop. It's <laughs> called first, first from Dan Shaughnessy. How did you explain to the players when you were with them at a bar, let's say, that, hey, I'm working or I'm not working? Well, I think that it was sort of understood. Like I wasn't like a pal. I, I wouldn't arrange to play golf with Danny Ainge or, or let's have dinner tomorrow night in the off night in Dallas. It was never like that. But the notion of bumping into people inadvertently. And since the bar was not off limits to anybody, I covered the Baltimore Orioles five years and Earl Weaver had a rule that that was the manager and the executives and the coaches. That was their bar and the players had to go elsewhere. So there was never a co-mingling. It was actually a pretty good rule. I think that started with Billy Martin kept beating up his players in hotel bars and you know they had to figure out a way to separate everything. So good rule. There was no rule like that. Casey Jones, the coach of the Celtics, most of the time I covered, he loved the hotel bar. He liked to sing. He'd any kind of piano lounge, Casey'd be crooning. I left my heart in San Francisco, whatever. So 
everybody was in that space in the hotel. It's, you know, we're lazy. We don't want to go out. So we'd end up there. So I'd end up there. It was understood. If we were talking in the bar, that was off the record. That was on background. I mean, you could get background. ML Carr came up to me in Chicago once. We were day drinking on a, a day off. They had a practice and no game that night. He found me and another writer in the bar. He sat down and just laid into Bill Fitch and all the things he hated about him and and how he was going to get him out of town. And and it, it gave me the, the strength of knowing the players. There was a revolt going on. I didn't write that, but I knew there was. And I could, you know, it was a way to cover the team, knowing that there was disgruntlement and point out things that were happening on the sideline or in the locker room. And, you know, kind of the, uh, the underlying layer that things aren't, aren't good in Dodge. This is not going to be a a long running relationship. This might be the last year for Fitch. Well, it was, it helped to have that background, but I wasn't going to quote ML saying, I will get his ass out of town kind of thing. So that was understood. And I think that they knew. And if, if, if you burn somebody once on that, that'd be it. You'd, you'd be frozen out. You wouldn't be allowed into the circle, but it, it, it was useful to be able to talk to Larry Byrne about growing up in Indiana and, and just, you know, a lot of stuff in his life that that was just useful on background, but not for quotes. Now, some of those things I've I've put into this book because they, you know, he told me he wanted to adopt two children. I remember, and I I remember I kept little journals and I wrote that down. And ultimately, he did adopt two children. I thought that was kind of cool that he knew as before he was even married that he wanted to adopt two kids, and then he did. So I thought that's a useful piece of information. Now it's okay to quote that now. And just talking about having older brothers and learning how to shoot with your older brothers because I had that experience and stuff like that. Now, when things would happen that affected the team and and if if there were a fight in the bar, well, the the rules change. I mean, you'd have to say there was an incident last night in the bar because it's a if it happens in public and it affects the you know the players. Yeah, I think then then you got to report it. If someone just has a thousand beers, that's not a thing. Uh, as long as you don't notice anything on the court the next night, and some of these guys could do it. There was one instance in, in Minnesota, uh, excuse me, I should say Milwaukee. Uh, Kevin McHale is from the Iron Range in Minnesota, and the closest team was the Milwaukee Brewers. It's like a six-hour drive down. So he had this group of bust-out friends from the, from the U, from the Gophers from Minnesota, including one of his cousins and one of his brothers, and they would, they would Winnebago down when the Celtics played the Bucks, and this Winnebago would be parked outside the Milwaukee Hyatt. And if you saw that thing, if you knew gamblers, that would have been the time to place the call and say, put it in big on the Bucks tomorrow, because this is not going to be good for the Celtics. And these guys would come down. I remember there, there was a day game, a Sunday afternoon, it was NBC or CBS special. So they'd make them play it at noontime in Milwaukee. And that means if you get in on Saturday, we, we took a bus down from, I don't know where they were playing, Chicago or something. And, and, uh, and we saw the Winnebago there and thinking this is going to be a long night for the fellows. And tomorrow's game is probably going to be heavy on the bucks. And sure enough, I bird went out with, with Buckner and McHale and, and a bunch of them. And, um, and it was the next day that, you know, I think McHale was one for eight from the floor. And the only guy who played any good was Danny Ainge, who was a Mormon. He never went out with those guys and the bucks, the bucks routed them. Don Nelson knew about this. He offered to get a suite for these guys. We called them the Minnesota crew. And, you know, Casey Jones was smart enough not to yell at his players or get all disappointed. He just put his arm around McHale after the game, and he said, those guys aren't coming to Chicago, are they? <laughs> he said, no, Case, they're not. And when I talked to McHale about it 37 years later, he, I, he, he started reciting their names. He says, just saying those names makes my liver start hurting. You know, so it was kind of an inside joke. Everybody knew about it did happen. 
Uh, a more serious episode like that would be in, in 85, Bird got into a barroom fight and he busted up his hand. I know he did, can't prove it. There was lawsuits filed, actions filed. Larry settled out of court, never owned up to it until you know six months later, he finally confessed to a woman reporter from Worcester that he embarrassed his mother and he felt bad about it. He got to be more careful. And he didn't talk to me for six months after I wrote that because I found the guy that he hit and, you know, it was an out-of-court settlement, but I knew the guy and the guy's girlfriend, and I wrote about his page one story, and so I paid the price on that, but that was that was something that affected the way Larry shot in the playoffs, quite possibly, because his hand was taped up, and it happened. He was, he was treated at the hospital, and those things happened, so there was always a fine line on that, but I think that it's an understanding that you have to have, I and mean, your question's a very good one, and, but when you're just, can, you know, bumping into somebody in the hotel, the bar, you talk to them, but unless you're taking out your notebook and saying, Hey, uh, you have any problem with coming off the bench for these guys or something then it's a reporter, you know, player relationship. But if you're just shooting the breeze in a hotel bar, no, that's just on background. Did Red Arback ever come to you and ask for information? Because clearly, Oh, oh my God, no, Red knew everything. I mean, you know, I was, <laughs> uh, Red say that, but as president of a team, there's stuff that goes on with the players that you want to believe, you know, and you think, you know, everything, but I always thought that it was the writers and the people who were in the inner circle of the players who actually had even more information than I did. And I'm wondering whether red would ever take the time to try to get information from you. Red had other sources that I certainly, I was a young reporter fresh to the NBA and, uh, you know, uh, even like Bob Ryan, who was the veteran grizzled guy before me, he may have had that relationship with, 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 with some of the uppers, but with me, they didn't trust me. And, uh, and they, they always knew more than I did. I was, I was scrambling to find things out. I would go to like, like Kuzi and Heinz were good sources for me because they were veterans. They were broadcasters. They traveled with the team a lot. They saw things and they were not afraid to tell me I wouldn't quote them. But it was like, yeah, these guys are tuned out, Fitch. It's near, it's almost over, you know. And then you, you had the command of knowing that a guy like Bob Cousy or Tommy Heisen seeing that. So you knew you were right. So I would just write it on my own and use that information. But those guys knew stuff. And I'm sure that Red could have relied on his guys, Tommy and Coos, to tell him what was going on inside when he wasn't on the road. How many of the players from the uh, teams of the 80s did you speak to before publishing the book? So, um, I think it was it was everybody except the only guys I didn't get. Dennis Johnson passed away, unfortunately, which was really unfortunate in so many levels. But he, I loved him. We got along great. <clears throat> DJ died down in Florida at the age of 52, I think, in 2007. He was coaching, trying to get back to the he was in the D League down there. And um, uh, Robert Parrish hates me. So we never had a relationship. That's there's a whole chapter on that in the book. And you know, his wife's trying to gouge my eyes out. And, and uh, I asked Max about it 37 years later. I said, what was that all about with Robert? He said, Chief just had a disdain for your ass. I said, okay, I'll have to live with that. So that was never an issue. And Larry's turned off the faucets entirely. Uh, you know, I reached out to him. I, I can tell you in the last year, he, he didn't get back to Cedric Maxwell, who was writing a book, or Jackie McMullen or Bob Ryan, who, you know, did his biography with him. Both of them did bios with him where they would stay at his house. He's just turned off the faucets. His, he's done with it. I understand that. I respect that. He gave us his game. And I had so much from the old days. And, and it all comes out. So are you worried? Do you think Larry will read the book? No, nah, no. Nah, he's, you know, <laughs> he took 160 bucks off me in a shooting contest one day. And he remembers that. 
that's his favorite memory of Dan Scoop Shaughnessy. But beyond that, um, it's just, I, I mean, I hope he does. I think he'd get some chuckles out of it. Uh, I just don't think, I don't think even Walton, even Walton, we talked for over an hour and Bill's Mr. Enthusiasm. Bill basically named the book. I mean, he's the one who I wish it lasted forever. He said that and he does because it was a gift to him as late in his life, his professional career. He got this one year, he got to play 80 games with Larry Bird and he'll never get over it. How great that was. He told me, he said, empty the thesaurus when you write this. He said, you cannot overstate how great this was. And just gushing and gushing and gushing. And Bill tends to be Mr. Hyperbole anyway. But um, uh, yeah, he, I, he says he doesn't read stuff about himself. And it makes me a little sad because he's all over this book with the greatest quotes ever. So they're not, Cedric yeah. Maxwell did a biography. I don't even know if he read his own book. But, uh, you know, these guys, they're not big readers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, first of all, Bill Walton happens to be a really charitable guy who I've worked with with a foundation called Challenged Athletes Foundation, where we raise money for disabled athletes, physically challenged athletes, and give them legs so they can run for amputees. Bill Walton is a terrific, terrific guy. Career cut short by injuries would have been one of the greatest, is still considered one of the greatest. Yep. I want to get back to the chief for a minute because Robert Parrish was the center. He wore double zero for the Celtics. Being a black player in Boston, I want to talk about it because it's, 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 a, it's a factor. And back then it was a factor. There's an argument to be made it's still a factor. Do you believe that part of his – he was surly is how I would describe Robert Parrish. But I also believe that he was surly in his mind that it was justified because he was being in his mind – used as this athlete, as this centerpiece in a in the greatest front line in history, by the way. Right. For those of you who think the Bulls or any other team had great starting five or great front line, Parrish, McHale, and Bird is the number one, without a doubt, front line in NBA yeah. history. So I, I'm curious, when you were working with Robert Parrish, even though he did not like you, did you feel as though that race or Boston was a part of that? Or do you believe that that was just his personality? He blew hot and cold. Um, his teammates loved him. And, um, you know, and he, he was a great teammate. He didn't need the ball. He didn't complain about touches. Um, he subjugated his own ego to be in that front line and, you know, didn't get as many shots and, and wasn't as celebrated as he might have been. It bothered him at contract time. I think that that bothered him. I think that, and I talk, Maxwell talks about this. Maxwell had a theory that, you know, when, when the Celtics won, we would put the Boston Globe would put, you know, the white guys on the cover of sports, you know, Ainge, Bird, McHale. And if they lost, he said, they'll have some goofy picture of me or chief, you know, you know, making a face like this. 
And um, there's a picture in the book with, with Max while they lose a game in Philly. And there's this goofy picture of Max on the cover of our section. So he, he loved that because it, it, it validated his theory. I said, Max, this is not, not right, but just for your record, this did happen this one time. So anyway, um, and I think with Chief, I felt that he just, he made up his mind about me before giving me a chance. And I, I don't hold it against him. I've had this with millions of athletes and uh, it was fine. I, I, I loved his game. I was hard on him when if, if I thought he was no showing, I'd be hard on him. He, he held out one time over money and he was under contract. I didn't, I, I, I worked against him on that. So, and uh, you know, it just, I'm sure his wife hated me as well. She chased me down the hallway when they won the championship as a scene about that. Um, so yeah, I would, I would be hard on him, but at the same time, I mean, you couldn't take away, he played more NBA games than anyone in history and he won one more ring than these guys because he went to the Bulls and, and was on the bench for those teams at the end. Um, took great care of himself, ran the floor. Bill Fitch made him a great NBA player because they got him from the Warriors and he was he was good there, but he wasn't great. He was great in Boston. And, uh, well, uh, and he, he could... Dan, is he paid attention. So when you're playing with Larry Bird, you have to have your head up at all times. Oh my God. Beneficiary and... of some unbelievable bird passes. If you want to go on YouTube and yes. watch <laughs> clips... Rex Chapman on Twitter did a bunch of clips of Larry Bird and his passing. It, it's magical. He's the greatest passer of all time in my mind. I'm gushing about the Celtics, which makes me crazy because I hate them so much. But I have such respect for what they did. And what the Chief did better than anyone, he was paying attention. And NBA players do not pay attention today the way they did back then. You had to. The ball hit you in the head if you weren't paying attention. He knew that. And he got a lot of easy buckets out of it. He certainly did. I want to ask you about Larry. And when he left, it was a very big deal when he left Boston and, and joined the Pacers. I think people may not understand when he became coach, executive. To me, he's a Celtic, will always be a Celtic. What happened there? Why so many Celtics, whether it was Tommy Heinsohn, you talked about Casey Jones, where they are a part of the organization and they're just a permanent part of the organization. Was there a falling out between Larry and the Celtics? I would say no. I think that, you know, he had one of those executive no-show jobs right after he retired. And he certainly honored that part of it because I remember going to, they have an offices on Merrimack Street down by the old garden. And I went into the door one time and he was at the other side of the lobby and we were standing by the elevator. Celtic offices were somewhere upstairs, seventh or eighth floor. We're standing together at the elevator, you know, breaking chops. And I said, you don't know what floor to hit, do you? And he said, no, neither one of us knew what floor the officers were on. He was working for the team. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we figured that out right away. But when it got, you know, beyond that, I, he may have had a chance to coach the team. They brought in Patino. That kind of took away everything at that point. Even Red had to become one notch down on the totem pole for Patino. It was crazy. But I think I, I know Larry did not want to coach the Celtics because he, he wanted to leave Boston untainted, untouched by any possible – you know, you take over the team and all of a sudden you're diminished because the team's not that good and you're the, the coach of the bad team. He didn't want his reputation. It was at the top, top, like Bobby Orr was. He just walked away like that and never have a situation where they're not going to like you as much. And so he got to walk with that. And in Indiana, when he took the job to coach the Pacers, and I mean, hey, he liked being back in French Lick, Terre Haute, and, you know, he, he would settle for Indianapolis. But his people, more comfort, not bothered as much. And uh, just really comfortable with that. So I think that being able to get back into the league at that level, and he ended up being great at everything. Great coach, great GM. Um, and when he decided to coach, 
he put a three-year term limits on it and he honored that. He got to the finals in the third year and walked away. And because uh, I think the Fitch experience was part of that. He, he recognized it in, in that league and it only got worse. Three years is about the limit in most cases for a head coach. And, and uh, he stuck with that. You know, he didn't need the money. So I just think that for him, he, he, he was able to leave his reputation perfect in Boston. I think when people look back on the NBA, you talked about its renaissance. It started with the bird and magic. When they went to the NCAA finals, they played each other, then they get drafted, they come into the league. And it, it was at a time, it's only, by the way, this is only 40 years ago, which in history is not a lot of time, but for many people, it's before their lifetime. Certainly many people in this audience and many people reading your book, so they may not understand. The NBA, there were finals games that were on tape delay at 1130, yeah. right? This is, we're talking about a league where there were point shaving, there was cocaine, there were all sorts of issues going on. And Burton Magic came and... I would say that along with David Stern, although I would say Bird and Magic are far more responsible for what the NBA is today than even Michael Jordan, because without Bird and Magic, Jordan couldn't have done what Jordan did. But the problem with Larry Bird, in my opinion, as he went to Indiana, that happens with all these great players, it's hard to be a good executive, and we're seeing this in current sports today, and a good coach when you've been a great player, because... The players have so much more money so much earlier now. They don't have the skills or the drive that the players had in the 80s in, in almost every case. And I was wondering, and I'm sorry that you didn't speak to Larry, so it sort of makes me feel like you won't be able to answer this question. What do you think his level of frustration would be? Now, he did make it to the finals, but when you are coaching a team and they can't do the things that you did and you can't teach them to see the floor the way Larry did, how did he handle that? And how do you even coach a team like the 86 Celtics when to me, they could coach themselves? Well, again, you see this at, in every, I mean, Ted Williams became a baseball manager and it was always hard for Ted. He didn't understand why these guys couldn't hit. And he just figured they were just stupid. You know, what's the problem here? You know, and that's, it's just not as easy for everybody else, but, and, you know, I've, I talked to McHale quite a bit. They're, they're careful. They're not going to tell you about today's players because they, they like their place in the league and they want to keep that. And just it's better to not say the things that they're thinking to us. And I understand that, which is, hey, these AAU Warriors, they, you know, they don't they never had to do what we did. They didn't play in college for four years. You know, they weren't finished products when they came out. They weren't grownups. They weren't adults. They don't really understand what it was like and to be part of a team to subjugate your ego. And it's just, it's all about them and their brand. And, you know, but they're not going to say that every, we, we all know that's how you would have to feel, but you want to keep people happy. No one's going to say Jason Tatum is a selfish guy. He doesn't really understand the team concept and plays too much ISO ball at the end. Cause you got to keep him pumped up and hope he doesn't leave town. So yeah, you're not going to get that, but I, I believe they're feeling it. I know that Mikhail, the, the Garnett issue, that was tough. Because, you know, he had this amazing star and he had to trade him. And he traded him to Danny Ainge. He helped the Celtics one last time, unbelievably. But there's no doubt they feel that. And everything you say is true. Uh, but they're careful about not calling guys out about our time versus this time. It's evolution. They understand how it's evolved. They don't like it, but they live with it. Do you not think the 86 Celtics are the best team in history? I do believe that. That team went 15-1 at home. No one's ever going to do that. How did they, they go 50 and one? Are you including? Well, it's 40 and one plus 10 playoff games. Got it. Um, and no one's going to do that. 
uh, it's and, and they were they were toying with people. Unfortunately, didn't get the Lakers in the finals. The Lakers that was unfortunate because the the Larry Magic finals. There were three and four years. That's like Ali Frazier of the NBA. That's what those were like. And uh, to not have the one in '86 was was too bad. But again, five Hall of Famers. Hall of Famer Walton coming off the bench playing 80 games. Hall of Fame coach Casey Jones. You know, sharpshooter C Sting, Scott Wedman. And, and as you say, the front line of Bird, Parrish, McHale, Dennis Johnson, Hall of Fame guard, Danny Ainge, one of the fastest guys in the league. It, I, I believe that. And I talked to Rick Carlisle about this very thing because Rick was on the team and he's now part of the league. So this is a guy who can really speak to this. Rick was a marginal player in the NBA, but he's won a championship as a coach, might end up being a Hall of Fame coach. He has seen the league from the 80s until now. He says, we, yeah, we could play with anybody, you know, because of the size they had, the outside shooters they had. I mean, they didn't get, they weren't taken 20 a game, but they could make them. I mean, Scott Wedman, Larry Bird, Jerry Seasting, Danny Ainger, Marksman. And having the size they had, Walton was seven foot two, Parrish was seven feet, McHale was 6'10 with seven foot arms, Larry was 6'9, farm strong. So they could, they could play down low, they could run the floor, and it was the greatest passing team of all time, as you've already noted. So, I, I believe it translates. Mikhail says, you know, it's 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 the way they call the game now. He says, we'd all file out in the first quarter now. That would be the problem. If they let us play by the rules of the 80s, we win. Do you remember uh, you talked when we started the show? Uh, there's rules in baseball that you're not allowed to. No one follows these, but, but of course, there's no. it's called the fraternization rule. <laughs> so you're not allowed to talk to players of the other team before the game on the field, but all the players, they go into the clubhouse. Oh, yeah. and they trade jerseys and get them signed. Now, like in the NBA, it's funny with Dwayne Wade on his tour when he was exchanging jerseys on the court, like for photo opportunities. That sort of thing, when Pat Riley was coaching the Knicks or Phil Jackson with the Bulls or certainly the Pistons, the Celtics, you did not, when you knocked a player down, there was a rule, no layups. It was a pretty simple rule. No one gets a layup. The end ones were few and far between because you're going to crush the person, and that's how the Lambeer Bird fights would start with a crushing underneath the basket. And it's easy to have those fights when you've got, you know, Mikhail and Chief behind you and people who would do anything for Larry. So I think about the difference in the game. Now it's just a chuck and duck league, and I sound old when I complain about it, but I want to talk to our younger fans again. The beauty of Steph Curry is undeniable and his ability to shoot. However, the beauty of Stockton to Malone, when you're running backdoor plays, when you actually have a coach who's calling plays on the sideline every time down, and you're watching them get executed, where there's backdoor cuts, where the ball, it's not just ISO, right? That you, you get the ball into the post, and then you've got movement. That is why I think the teams of the 86 Celtics or even the Bulls teams were better than current teams today. And, and Dan, I get crushed by people like Coca and all of the other youngins who tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about, that those old-time players shouldn't even be in the top 75. Help me win my argument, please. Your argument is correct. And again, go back and watch the video. And again, these are big people that are fast people and physical people. They're not like you know, like, it's not like talking about Bob Cousy translated to today's game. That's, that's a little harder. I understand that. Now you still have Curry and you had Stockton, but you know, some of the things, you know, the set shots gone away. I mean, a lot of stuff is different. These guys are playing above the rim. They're capable of running. And, and again, they're so big and the passing is so good to your point. There's a, uh, I wrote, this is in the book, but when Walt would come off the low block and go to the bow line and Larry'd be the point forward, he'd be out top. And they had this thing where, Larry would just, you know, Feather, Bill would come out 
and Larry hit him at the foul line and Bill knew how to hold it high and extend his elbows. And he's so such a giant, nobody could get near him. And in that mo moment, Larry would look at Walton. Walton would nod his head one way or the other. And that was it. Larry blasted a basket on whichever way he nodded. And Walton would just feather it over his head without looking at him. And Larry would get a reverse layup. I mean, you can't re replicate how beautiful that is. And, and it's just more fun to watch. And I, I think I said, like Danny Ainge, you know, he loved Walton's passing so much. He, he would beg Casey Jones to get into the garbage time just to be on the floor with the subs at the end. So he could be the recipient of Bill's passes. I mean, it was it was magic, and it's it's a more fluid game. And this is where we sound like the old guys, the picket fence, and whatnot. But yeah, just seeing that kind of flow and uh, the inside-out way they played, and and having big people and physical people who were still fast and 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 could make long-range shots that translates to today's game. Sorry, it does. Can you tell me, please, about the process of writing a book? I wouldn't mind that. I'm trying to understand well, <laughs> what happens because you come up with these ideas. You basically just talk about it happened in the pandemic. You started thinking about it. I get that because you're drawing from your wealth of experience. But if you're going to write a book about the Bambino, right, that's not coming from your wealth of experience. How do you, what is the process from the idea to getting words on paper to getting it published, to being on nothing personal. Can you walk me through that for people? Well, who when you like have that? the, uh, you know, you have the idea, you want to sell the idea and, and you have to put a proposal together and that, that can be arduous and not fun. You got to have some structure and form to it. And you've got to have universal truths in there. You know, like it can't just be, oh, this is really interesting. I think it's interesting. Well, no one else does. It's interesting to you, but you've got to tell me why this is what the universal truths are. And, and in this case, like, Teamwork, camaraderie, secure people who are great at what they do and they're funny and they interact. That's that's always entertaining in, in any era. So having Cedric Maxwell make fun of Bernard King or Bill Walton and Larry Bird talk about this poetry of passing to each other or, or Bill Walton going to Larry's driveway in, in French Lick and scooping up dirt and using it all season to sprinkle on himself and then putting it in his own driveway in California at the end of the year. Those, those stories are universal truths that are interesting about great people. You've got to have those. You try and pitch it. You want someone to buy it, but you've got to have structure and form. You just can't be all over the place telling all these stories and they've got to have some meaning. Not everything is an anecdote, but with a book, an old book like this stuff that happened a long time ago, why do we still want to read about it? because they were funny, they were insightful, they were great, and we can tell you what they were like. We already know who won. We know who won Celtics-Lakers and all that, so there's no sense in going over the play-by-play -play of this, but there are certain things like the McHale takedown of Rambus, you know, what led up to that, and, and how does Kevin feel about it now? And Kevin will say, I'd, I'd be suspended for a year if that happened now, but in those days, Rambus takes two free throws, it goes the other way. It led to changes in the league. It led to flagrant fouls and plus ones and possessions and all these things, it's just the evolution of the sport. And in this book, you see it evolve from what you cited, a team with 17 out of 23 teams losing money and drug trouble and finals on tape delay into Larry and Magic come in. You get Ali Frazier going on. Jordan comes in. Stern becomes commissioner. Then you, it leads up to the dream team where they become a global entity in 1992 and up to where we are today. This is, this is watching the NBA grow up and become that global entity through these great players in a, in a one, one moment in time when they were all together. But do you put a treatment together? 
I'm, I'm actually I, asking I just, the mechanics. I think this was probably a, a, a 3,000 word proposal, something like that. Here's how it's going to be. And, you know, I had to tell the publisher, I'm going to be a character. You know, this is what I have that's different is these personal conversations with these guys about themselves and, and breaking balls back and forth with me and meeting in the hotel bar and, you know, sit with Bruce Springsteen at the Reunion Arena. Was sitting with Larry Bird at the Reunion Arena in Dallas when a Springsteen show is breaking out next door and all these kids are running through the hotel and Larry says, what are they doing? What's that all about? And we said, well, Bruce Springsteen's in town tonight. And Larry Bird says, who's that? And I said, well, Larry, he's the you of rock and roll. And Larry says, well, he must be pretty good then. And then that, that story evolves to where Mikhail is friends with Nils Lofgren, the guitar player. They go to the show. Larry's like, yeah, it's too loud. He sweats a lot, but I, I, that's not my kind of music. And, and we end up sitting around having beers with Nils Lofgren and Bruce and Roy Bitten and Kevin McHale and just in this young singer named Patty who ends up being Bruce's wife years later and had raises three children with them. So you can't get that kind of story in your normal basketball book. So you do the treatment, you sell it. And then what do you have to commit to? Do you have to commit to doing a certain number of these podcasts or these shows, or do you go on a book tour? How do you, what are the mechanics of getting, getting it out there and getting it sold? Well, they, they pay you in advance to write the book and, and you want the book to do well so that they'll let you do another book someday if you want to, or, God forbid you get royalties over and above that advance. And so, you know, you want your book to do well and you get out there and it's a very competitive feel. Like Scotty Pippen's got a book out now, you all know. And there's a lot of great stuff out there. Katie Couric's got a great book out there. Everybody's got books out there. So, you know, it's a competitive feel. You want to get the message out there, especially pre-Christmas. This is a good gift. Celtic fans are all around the country. So you sell that to the publisher and you agree, you know, they can't, they can't pin me up against the wall and make me do all this. It's not in the contract. I have to do all this, but I think this is my 40th interview in the last four days, you know, and I like talking about this stuff and, you know, you get better at it and, and it's fun to bring it out. And guys like yourself, you have different perspective on it than the last guy I talked to. And so it's fresh and it's new. And I appreciate the background that you bring to it because sometimes it's a little, it's a little tough sled in doing this, but uh, that's the book business. And, and it's, it's rough out there. I, I don't love doing it, but I love this book. And, uh, and I'm excited about this book. And I think it's, I think it's going to be a keeper. I really do. So I'm, I'm fired up for it. But when you actually get down to doing your book, I'm linear. I go A to Z. I start in 82 and I finish in 86. And then I bring in all these stories. And then after I structure it, I, I round up 12 or 13 of those old subjects and they give me their voices to amplify the linear history that I have and, and make it fresh in the new stuff and perspective that they have on it. So do you wait for inspiration right now? Because you're, you're on the book tour. You've got this book, which again is called Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with Larry Bird, with the Larry Bird Celtics, which is a must read. But I got, the, I got it online and it was not autographed by you, which was disappointing. <laughs> which, which we'll is fix true. that. Tell me about the next book. Are you waiting for inspiration? Because it took the pandemic for this one, but you yeah. are a prolific book writer. Do you already start thinking about what's next? Every time I do one, I say it's the last one, you know, and uh, that that's my agent and they all make fun of me on that. I mean, you know, he's he wants me to do some Tom Brady thing, you know, and because I, I, I was at all that. I was at all of his games, all of his playoff games. There was a lot of them, you know, the nine Super Bowls, all that stuff. And now that story's not over yet. And, you know, it's, it's evolving as we sit here. I mean, Patriots are playing uh, this week against Atlanta and Brady's playing Monday night football and 
they could play in the Super Bowl. They could face each other in the Super Bowl. So when that thing's finally over and Tom Brady wants it to go another, who knows, three, four, five years, but uh, someone's, you know, that the great book there is going to be when Tom Brady tells his story or if Belichick tells his story. I'd, I'd get fired up for that because they got so much to say. Have you been in the hotel bar with Tom Brady ever? Uh, no. I, the answer to that would be no because – in, in the NFL, there's a lot of security in the NFL. You can't even get on the same floor as them. I've been in the same hotels with them, but they have their own floors with security guys at the elevators. I mean, it's they're careful. I don't know whether that's about gambling or they're, they're only doing like eight nights a year on the road, but it, it's not that whole travel thing that we had with those Celtics. I think people should get your book and realize that while times have changed, the stories that you tell, they really do translate to today because everyone is looking for information, good stories. They're looking for something that they can't tell from a player's Instagram or Twitter account. And you, Dan, were right there with them every step of the way. Congratulations on the book. Again, go get it. Wish it lasted forever. Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. And believe me, you will agree, not just a great book, but they are the greatest team of all time. Dan, I really do appreciate your time. Look forward to doing this again with you. Thanks, Dave. Really enjoyed it. 